Good evening, uh, everybody, and welcome to the LSE. My name is Chris Brown, and I'm here today to uh, introduce our speaker, uh, Walter Russell Mead, who is Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow at the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he's a very prolific author. Uh, we always say that on these occasions, but I actually brought along the books to show you. Authors like that kind of thing. And uh, it's also the case that they're very heavily thumbed. He's somebody who's used very extensively by students of international relations and American foreign policy. His book, uh, Special Providence, which came out in 2002, uh, is, a, is a, a joy for teachers because it, it classifies American presidents into mixtures of Jeffersonian, Washington, uh, sorry, Wilsonian, Hamiltonian, and Jacksonian. So you can have endless fun in seminars working out what George W. Bush was or what Obama was. We were, at lunch today, we agreed Obama is Jeffersonian with a bit of Wilsonian, uh, Wilsonianism that may come out later. Uh, so that's very good. Or Power, Peace... Power, Terror, Peace and War is, a, is his second book, and, and this again has, it shows a great deal of literary grace, which characterizes all his work, uh, and he invents these notions. You'll be familiar with Joe Nye's idea of soft power. Uh, Walter talks about sharp power, uh, sweet power, and my personal favorite, sticky power, uh, as different kinds of power that's exercised in the world. His most recent book is uh, Gold uh, and God, or is it God and, it's God and Gold? And this uh, uh, came out a couple of years ago, uh, 2007. There's a, there's a very interesting uh, quote from The Economist in the front cover of this book. It says, you know, with spare time in his hands, Osama bin Laden is supposed to read a lot. If the CIA want to demoralize and distract him, it might, might make sure he gets a copy of Walter Russell Mead's new book. Uh, I don't know if this has been tested at all, uh, whether the CIA have attempted to airdrop this into the region of Pakistan to see whether it results in demoralization, but it's an interesting thought. This evening he'll speak to us on what has become one of the key questions for our age, is America in decline? It's my great pleasure to introduce Walter Russell Mead. Well, thanks for that uh, warm introduction. I think one of, the, one of the few reasons I can think of why anybody would pursue a career that has a lot of public speaking in it is that you get to listen to people introduce you. And since they want you to look good, as they've invited you to their place, they almost always say very nice things about you. And you kind of, it's kind of good. I kind of like it. Um, all right. Well, I thought tonight what I would try to do is talk about this question of, is America in decline? Uh, it's, it's a wonderful question. It brings together a lot of different ideas and considerations. Um, although I have to say, as a, as a good red-blooded American, I'm tempted to answer the question very shortly. You know, is America in decline? Hell no! And then maybe thank you and walk off. Uh, but I think that maybe went out of style with the last administration. Uh, what, you, what you find more likely uh, in, in terms of an answer is that when intellectuals get a chance to wrestle with this question, they tend to give you one of two answers. Uh, is American decline? Yes, but I know how to stop it. Or on the other hand, uh, yes, but if you take my advice, the decline will be painless and slow, and you'll end up in a world that you still like. Uh, so... Uh, 
But I think that in general, when people talk about this question, they don't pay enough attention to what a complicated, tricky question it really is. Um, Because if we're going to ask, is America in decline, we sort of have to ask, in reference to what? In what context? For what purpose? What is American foreign policy trying to do? What is its goal? It's amazing to me how many people talk about American foreign policy, write American foreign policy, even frankly do American foreign policy, and aren't able to give a clear, comprehensive answer to that question. What is America trying to do in the world? Because it's really only if you have a vision of of what the goal of American foreign policy is, or even the necessary minimum of that goal that it has to achieve, uh, it's only then that you can ask, okay, well, what resources does America bring to this task? Does it have enough resources for, the, for this task, different elements of this task? Um, is it, is it, does it have so much that if so, so many resources, it has a kind of a surplus of resources, So if the resources are going down, it may still be able to get what it needs, in which case the concept of decline becomes a little vague and fishy. Or is there already a gap between America's resources and its requirements, and then is that gap rising or falling, growing or falling? These are all questions one has to ask if one wants to think, I think, seriously about American decline. Doing that would take an awful long time. We don't really have time for all of that tonight. I'm, not sh- I- I'm pretty sure you don't have the patience for it. And I know that I don't have all the knowledge necessary to give a comprehensive answer to these questions. Um, uh, people in international relations wrestle a good deal over what are uh, the interests of a state. One of the interesting things about the United States is that there's really... It's a horrible admission to make, but there's really no one in charge, no single authority in charge of American foreign policy. President Obama has foreign policy views, but and under our Constitution, he has a lot of authority in setting up American foreign policy, but his, but his authority is not unlimited. The two houses of Congress have a say. In some cases, individual senators have a say. For example... In the American system, if you are a senator and someone has been nominated to be an ambassador to a foreign country, and at some point in their career this person has made you very, very angry, you can place that appointment, that nomination on hold, and the Senate will not vote on it. So that if you're in the American Foreign Service and you hope someday to end up as a an ambassador, which is what most of them hope to do, that's That's the sort of glorious flower in which a Foreign Service career hopefully will end. You know that all during your tenure, presidents come or go, but mortally offending a senator could well be the end of your career, could put a ceiling on your aspirations. So the people who carry out American foreign policy don't only listen to the president. There are even whole bureaucracies in, in the American State Department that the president doesn't, didn't necessarily want to be there, would possibly get rid of if he wanted, but they're there by acts of Congress. 
let's take, uh, I mean, I'm sure President Obama is very happy that we have a human rights office in the State Department. But the point is, that office is set up, or the Office of Religious Freedom or any one of a number of other offices, are set up by Congress. And there's usually a small number of people in Congress who are intensely interested in the work of that bureau. And in fact, they've established that bureau as a kind of a, a, a sort of a secret agent to pull American foreign policy as a whole in a specific direction, regardless of what the president or the secretary of state wants. So you'll, you'll see occasions where the, U, the president of the United States is getting ready to sign a big agreement with Saudi Arabia, love and kisses to our beloved desert monarchy and its uh, many friends, and then the Office of Religious Freedom will issue its annually mandated scheduled report and says Saudi Arabia has the following grave defects which we in all conscience cannot uh, prevent our, restrain ourselves from mentioning. And the Saudis naturally ask, why? What did, what did you mean by that? Well, the answer is actually nothing. Um, President Obama didn't mean for that report to come out this week, but that's the week it comes out. Uh, and the people who write those reports aren't thinking about what, what is useful for the president to be in this report. They're thinking, how do I keep those senators and congressmen who fund this office, who've created this office, who cherish this office, how do I keep them happy? So... What are the goals of American foreign policy is a very complicated question to answer at any one time. And therefore, to think about is the United States gaining or losing the capacity to achieve its goals, you find that you're, you, you find this is both ends of that question begin to dissolve into mist when you try to analyze them too closely. Capacity and goals. So rather than trying to give some kind of comprehensive, systematic, and for the ages answer to this question of is America in decline, I'm going to try to show you how I think about it. And in particular, I'm going to start by looking at some of the arguments that are being made today and are very fashionable today about why America is in some sort of inevitable decline and show you why I don't think those arguments are particularly strong. And by doing that, I hope we can uh, uh, get to a point where you will be able better to kind of assess this question for yourself and have some sense of, of its complexity. I also uh, will then, if, if the time remains to us, talk a little bit about some of the areas where I think there is a legitimate question or where, where the United States, let's say, faces very difficult tasks. And it may be that by focusing on the difficulty of some of those tasks, we can think more clearly about what kinds of resources can the United States and its friends and allies bring to the resolution of these tasks. So let me start with arguments for decline that I personally don't find very convincing. And the first one which is almost universal today. It's very hard to, to read about uh, American power, American foreign policy, and not hear this. It's that the shift from unipo a unipolar world to a multipolar world is happening, 
and that this shift is a sign of American decline. On the surface of it, this seems like a very sensible idea because, you know, surely a unipolar, a a world that is unipolar, the unipole is a pretty powerful place. And if we go to a multipolar world, that unipolar world now has to share pole position with some other poles, and surely that means some sort of a limit, uh, a, a rise of a limit on power. So it's not... It's not on the face of it absurd, and yet I find it, uh, the, the longer I look at this argument, the, the less I find that it has to, to tell us. Why is that? Because you have to look at Ameri- uh, you know, the goals of American foreign policy, the kind of order that the United States is trying to create in the world, and you realize that, that the United States, like Britain before it, for a very long time has been trying to create a kind of a liberal capitalist order in the world. Um, one in which all the great to which all the great powers would subscribe, and one of the chief consequences of a global liter- uh, liberal capitalist order is that a lot of countries will grow rich in said order. In fact, one could really argue that a multipolar world of countries that aren't at war with each other is the kind of natural climax phase of American foreign policy. That would be the world that America wanted. If every country were rich and every country more or less accepted the basic kind of rules of the road that we were in, that would be the triumph of American foreign policy. And this is not just an abstract idea. Let's think about Europe today versus Europe 1945. In 1945, America was certainly in a unipolar moment, if there ever was one, a nuclear monopoly, 50% of global GDP in the U.S., all enemies bombed flat, and even the Soviet Union full of starving people and chaos and devastation from the war. Uh, If America's goal were to remain unipolar, it would have said, well, boy, 1945 is not bad, is it? Um, then we would look at, say, Europe, uh, you know, the world in 1985 and find, wait a minute, Europe has united into this powerful European Union and it is you know, disputing with the U.S. Uh, trade forums around the world and giving U.S. policymakers fits and European currencies are strong and the dollar, by comparison, is weak and the U.S. GDP is no longer anywhere near 50% of the world, aha, America is in decline, which, in fact, a good many people wrote at the time. Um, But, in fact, if you think about it, you think about the kind of world America was trying to create, in fact, 1985 was probably a healthier year for the American system than 1945 had been. And... After 1945, America's goal, say, with countries like Germany and Japan was not to say, you've been evil, you've been nasty, and now you are to be punished forever and kept so weak that you will never be able to challenge your defeat. No, that wasn't the approach. The approach was get rich. You can have everything you want except world domination by participating in this system. You can sell us as many Volkswagens and Toyotas as you want. You can bankrupt GM. You can, uh, 
you can invest on equal terms with American investors all over the world. We won't shut you out of our neo-colonial empire the way that the, the Spanish and the Portuguese tried to shut everyone else out of Latin America. You, you, know, you will have full legal equality with U.S.-based investors, and you can, you can do whatever you like. And the result was that Germany and Japan grew tremendously in ter- as, as economic rivals to the United States. Grew tr- you know, they, they had a much greater voice in international affairs in 1985 than they did in 1945 and were very capable of defending their interests and advancing their interests diplomatically, economically, and in many other ways. But far from being enemies of the system, they were and remain pillars of the system. So that multipolarity may be the desired end state. Unipolarity may represent either a temporary condition caused by some unusual effect, like the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, but it is not necessarily the aim of American foreign policy. In fact, I would say it is never strategically the aim or true aim, in my view, of American foreign policy to pursue unipolarity as a good, as a goal. So I cannot, in my vision, in my mind, see a shift from unipolarity to multipolarity as necessarily representing a decline in American power or a weakening of the American international position. And then if we look at the countries whose emergence is making the world more multipolar, above all China and India, it seems to me, although we will not know for many years and many different things can happen, it seems to me far more likely that these countries are pursuing the paths of Germany and Japan after 1945 than than they are pursuing the paths of Germany and Japan before 1945. So that this appears to be, and again, nothing is sure, particularly about the future. I forget who it was who said that prediction, as Yogi Berra is supposed to have said, prediction is always dangerous, especially when it involves the future. Um, And so one doesn't know how things might go. But it appears that if we look, say, 10 years, if we look back 10 years from now, India and China both seem more committed to growth within this multipolar liberal global system than they did 10 years ago. And in fact, 10 years ago, they seem both were more committed to that system than they were 10 years before that. We're looking at a fairly durable trend here. Um, So multipolarity may in fact be the strengthening and deepening and institutionalization of the strategic goals of American foreign policy rather than a challenge to it. And if we were to have a sophisticated discussion of decline as opposed to kind of a newspaper op-ed discussion of decline, one would actually, seems to me, need to treat the emergence of these powers in this context and ask what kind of stakeholders do they appear to be? Um, How do we measure both their their will 
to, to embrace this kind of system, and also the ability of the Americans to sort of herd them or, or entice them, welcome them into this system. And obviously in the question period, we may want to get into some of those questions. But I hope this is helping you see the difference that, that, that for me that exists between a kind of a superficial discussion of decline and a more sensible and useful discussion of it. But I want to move now from sort of a, a, a more eco, an economic uh, vision for the moment back more firmly into the world of geopolitics. Because again, here we see again particularly the rise of China uh, being used as both an example and a cause of this purported inevitable grand decline of the United States. Um, obviously, we have the question that, it's, that, it's, that maybe China is emerging as a stakeholder rather than a rival, but there's a more fundamental even thing that we need, we need to think about. The analogy that people tend to have in mind, especially in the U.S. and, and Europe, when they talk about the rise of China and the challenge to the U.S., is really they say, hey, it's 1900 all over again, and the role of Germany is being played by China, and the United States is starring in the role of Great Britain as we reenact this historical drama. And so in political science terms, people talk about the rising hegemon or aspiring hegemon, i.e. Germany, challenging the reigning hegemon, sort of aging, tired, paunchy boxer, uh, first Britain, now the United States, and, and that's what we look at. And that's the, that is, I think, the basis of this. But if we look more carefully, there are huge differences between that situation and the situation that we're in. If we look at Europe in 1900, yes, we clearly do see Germany rising. Its GDP is growing. Its trade is growing. Its technology is catching up with and by this time has indeed surpassed British technology in many, in many areas. And as it becomes wealthier and more powerful, its, its military is also growing. All of these things were clearly the case, and they certainly remind us of China today. Uh, we, might all, we might even go further and say that while there were elements of liberal democracy in the German system and some signs of opening, uh, political power was held in a rather non-transparent way with a disproportionate amount of power going to the military whose calculations might not be those, the same calculations as a more civilian societies would be. So there are some similarities. But now let's look at Europe. And what do we see in Europe in 1900? Frankly, we see a sea of declining powers. Austria-Hungary is being pulled apart by ethnic rivalries falling apart. France, since 1870, has been hypnotized by the specter of its own decline, looking at its falling population vis-a-vis Germany. Uh, France feels itself in danger of losing even the, the recognition of being a great power. Um, uh, Italy had re- you know, has more or less realized by then that the Risorgimento had created Italy. And that was what you were going to get. Um, Russia was beginning to, you know, was beginning to feel the strains that were going to lead to its defeat in the Russo-Japanese War, revolution, internal disintegration. Russia was being sort of uh, pulled asunder 
by modernization and forces that it, that it could not cope with successfully. So all around Germany is a continent in decline with one rising power. And so each year, the balance of power in Europe is becoming less stable. And Germany is more assertive, and the, other, and the countries around it are more defensive. Germany sees that increasing defensive solidarity and interprets it as aggressive attempt, aggressive hostility, etc. And it's a well-known cycle that we were on. But let's go to Asia today. We see something much, much nicer. Yes, China is rising. It's rising brilliantly. Long may it rise is my own view. India, however, is also rising. A very cynical American uh, observer, not Henry Kissinger, once said that uh, if there are going to be nuclear superpowers in Asia with more than a billion people in them, I'm glad there's two and not just one. Uh, what we're seeing in, we, we look at Japan, it's not rising, but it would be very hard to argue that Japan is in the same kind of terminal decline that's Austria-Hungary or Tsarist Russia was in, in 1900. And because of Japan's immense economy and its very high level of technological achievement, it will clearly be an important factor in the Asian balance of power as far as the eyes can see. Korea, a, South Korea, a rising power. North Korea, well, they've just selected a bright leader now to follow the <laughs> dear leader and the great leader, so... One wishes them well. Uh, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, all the, the, the entire region is rising. This suggests many things. One, it suggests that what we're seeing in, the, in, in Asia is not the emergence of a single angry superpower. What we're seeing in Asia is the emergence of an Asian system. Which, where, in which if you think of the three most important powers, China, India, Japan, any two of them for the foreseeable future has the ability to balance the third. And furthermore, with the United States offshore as a fourth, uh, you can see that it's, it's unlikely that any Asian power can reasonably hope to overturn this existing regional balance. And by the way, the very stability of that balance, as one projects forward, suggests that really there's hope of doing more than just an armed truce and a bitter uh, balance of power. One could begin to think about some kind of order and disarmament and other kinds of, you know, because again, in Asia, everybody wants to rise. Why not? And, and rise in peace. Why not make that? Why not facilitate that? So I would just suggest today that the emerging order in Asia is very different from the emerging order in, um, in Europe. And it also is developing in a way that makes it more or less likely that what the United States wants to see in Asia is what, the, what Asians themselves want to see. That is... The United States doesn't need to contain China because China can look around in Asia and see for itself that if it has friendly relations with other countries and isn't sort of seeking some kind of hegemony on its own part, 
it can look forward to a pretty bright future, but the moment it begins to move in certain directions, it triggers responses not necessarily from the United States, but from the region that begin to make its, its environment less attractive. So the United States is not trying to impose, in seeking the emergence of this kind of an order, the United States is not trying to impose something on Asia. It's actually seeking to cultivate what Asia itself is trying to become. And again, that would suggest for the long term, even as Asia rises, the United States does, would not, to achieve this goal in Asia, would not always need to be even the unparalleled, most powerful conventional military in Asia. It would merely need to be strong enough so that, so that its weight thrown into the Asian scale would be enough to convincingly deter any single Asian country from thinking that it had the option of, of seeking some kind of unilateral hegemony itself. Are you following me? I'm not saying are you agreeing with me. We can get to that later. Um, but uh, again, it seems to me that if, as I look at the rise of China and the rise of Asia more generally, I don't see something that makes me think that the U.S. role is ended. In fact, to some degree, the emergence of this Asian system where the U.S. is the kind of key offshore balancer, as well as the continuing unique U.S. role in the European security system and so on, may again make the U.S. something like a uniquely global power in a world of regional powers. The U.S. role would be a unique one in the international system, um, but not a kind of a conquest-oriented role. Uh, and its, its unique international position, in a sense, would be emerging from the geometry of the relations of other powers rather than some sort of act of domination uh, by the U.S. So having looked at this kind of geopolitical argument, um, I want to now go back to economics because there is another argument uh, about U.S. decline that, in a sense, it is another form of the rising powers challenging U.S. hegemony uh, um, debate, but this time it's in, the ter in an economic form, and the idea would be essentially the U.S. share of global GDP is falling relative to that of some other countries, and you know, this will ultimately mean that the U.S. is less able to play a kind of a, the kind of global role it's played. Questions about the, the, the future of the dollar as a reserve con uh, uh, currency, and so also touch on this. Um, and in addition to the kind of general argument, which you were hearing before the financial crisis began, there's sort of this argument has been sharpened and acquired some new elements from the presence of the, of the financial crisis and its consequences in the last few years. So what I want to do is first look generally at the, um, at, at the economic, this economic argument, and then talk specifically about how the crisis has, or in my view, maybe has not uh, changed this, this long-term outlook. 
After World War II, the U.S. had something like 50% of global GDP. Um, It had an equally large, even larger, I think, share of world gold reserves. Um, The U.S., by the way, at that time was the world's largest oil exporter. Those were the good old days. Um, And... So it, it had a kind of a unique role in the world. Today, you know, it's, it's getting a little harder to measure um, uh, global GDP in various ways, and you start thinking about, you know, component trades among offshore American manufacturers and so on. This actually gets hard to measure in some interesting ways now. However, um, you know, the headline figures would put the U.S. at, I think, something like 21, 22 percent of global GDP. Also, by the way, currency fluctuations make it harder to measure these things. Um, and if you look at the projections by uh, groups like the European Union and others who try to project long-term trends in the global economy, you'll see that this percentage is declining over the next 50 years to something like around 15%. Not by any means a catastrophic decline, but a steady relative fall in the U.S. share of the global GDP. And, and to me, that seems reasonable. By the way, it's, it's less, less fast than you might think because the U.S. is, is, is expected to grow faster than most other developed countries uh, partly because its population is still growing and is likely through immigration uh, to continue to grow. And, of course, all of these long-term estimates are pretty, pretty vague. Um, and, you know, people, a lot of people who didn't predict the current financial turmoil are giving you a 50-year projection about where the global economy would be. My own view remains something they taught me in pundit school, which is that it's always good to give a date, and it's always good to give a number, but it's never good to give a date and a number. <laughs> Keep that in mind when predicting. Um, so, if we look back in history and we look at the last English-speaking global hegemonic power, uh, one that was headquartered not a thousand miles from where we stand, um, the, um, British, the British economy at its peak of dominance, when Britain led the world in the Industrial Revolution, in, when it was really the only country that had what we would now regard as a modern global banking sector, when in some ways it was as dominant in the world of economy and technology as the U.S. was to become, was Britain sort of middle, late middle of the 19th century. And again, these are all estimates, and they're rather inaccurate. But at its peak, the British economy is estimated to have been at something like 7% of global GDP. What this means is that 50 years from now, the U.S. economy is likely to be, relative to global GDP, twice as large as Britain's was at the peak of the British Empire. Now, I would suggest that that might put a lower bound, at least, on our vision of Americans' decline, that after 50 years of decline, America would still be twice as powerful as Britain was at the peak of the British Empire. 
might suggest that the decline won't be a wrenching one from an American point of view. Um, And again, I don't want to suggest here that I think there's some simple one-to-one correspondence between economic strength and, uh, and world power. In fact, at the time that Britain conquered India, was conquering India, the Indian, impo- the Indian economy was about 20 times the size of the British economy in the late 18th century. Uh, in 1700, the country with the world's largest GDP was China, which was also the country with the world's largest population. So to suggest that there is some kind of automatic linkage between GDP and even population strength and impact on world affairs, I think, would be to miss some of the big events of the last 300 years. In 1700, when the wars between France and Britain were beginning, this what some call the Second Hundred Years' War, that ended with Britain's decisive defeat of the French and the full establishment of the, of the British world system with the defeat of Napoleon, at the start of those wars, Britain had about half the po- one-third the population of France and about half the GDP of France. So, these, you know, I, so we should not be so quick to say because America will have a high percentage of the world's GDP in 50 years, that means decline can't happen. But on the other hand, it does seem to me very, very difficult to argue from these numbers that decline must happen, or indeed that decline is happening now. So that's the big picture from my point of view about about the the economic issues. Uh, But let's let's talk about the, the current crisis that we're in, and especially the large increase in U.S. debt and the amount of debt of that debt that's held by a small number of other countries. Um, I, think, I think the first thing I would, I would say here when trying to assess this crisis is I have, this, I have a, an irritating but in my case sort of deeply ingrained tendency to try to look at these things in some sort of a historical context. And when I look at, the, at this global, this system of global liberal capitalism that we're in, which is more or less 350 years old, plus or minus, we've also seen 350 years of recurring global financial and economic panics and crashes. Um, and I suppose they started with the Dutch tulip bubble in the 17th centuries, or, although uh, a lot of scholars are now telling us it wasn't a bubble and it wasn't about tulips. But in any case, um, there's the British South Sea bubble, the uh, French Mississippi bubble, a long history of financial panics and crashes, many of them global in scale. So far, the result of these panics and crashes has not been the destruction of the global liberal capitalist order that the English-speaking powers were building, or even the destruction of the English-speaking powers that were trying to build them. Although very often, because these countries were the most engaged in the capitalist, emerging capitalist system, had the most commitment to it, and were the site of some of the most speculative uh, and complex financial activity at the time of the crisis, 
the losses and dislocations in these countries were very often greater than other than in other countries. So being a lead victim of an international financial crisis which was started by problems in your own financial markets is not incompatible by any means with being the leader of a world system which has a long, long time to run. Um, I think if we also look at what's happened now, we see that the chief victims to date of the international financial crisis in power terms are probably Russia, whose sort of dream of reviving the Soviet Union has, has had a rather sudden and disturbing interruption, uh, Iran, where economic disaster has led to the biggest political crisis in the history of the Islamic Republic, and Venezuela, where President Chavez is having, has had to cut back on the money that he sends to such key regional allies as Ecuador and Bolivia, uh, and where he's also beginning to look at some internal political issues as well. So that three of the noisiest, and in maybe a couple of cases, most dangerous uh, obstacles to American foreign policy have probably suffered greater losses in terms of power and ability to project power of various kinds than at least so far the U.S. has felt. That has been a pattern in these other historical crises. In terms of debt... Uh, and so on. There, there are a couple of reasons why I don't think that the level of debt that the U.S. has now or is even likely to accumulate in the, in the next few years is the kind of destructive force uh, that some people think. One of them is that it's, very, it's actually very difficult to use someone else's debt as a weapon when you are a primary holder of that debt. Let us ask ourselves, suppose China decided that the hour has come to really strike at American power by just trying to drive the dollar down, you know, to practically nothing and use, sell all of China's bonds and reserves and not take dollars. Ha, that'll fix them. Well, it would cause us a lot of trouble, I have to tell you. Um, But it would cause China even more trouble and much more quickly. That is to say, if China's reserves are suddenly, if the dollar crashes and loses all of its value, China's financial reserves lose all of their value. Um, China's customers, the Americans who, even in our current depressed state, are still feebly trying to buy as many Chinese goods as possible with our impaired credit cards, still nobly and sacrificially struggling to the mall, would be completely clapped out. And again, China would face a massive internal economic contraction, huge domestic unrest. A financial system, its own financial system, would implode Because in the general bankruptcy of the Chinese export sector, financial firms and loans would clearly topple. And furthermore, the the hard currency reserves on which China would normally rely to bail out 
domestic demand and the financial sector would be suddenly worthless because they were just these dollar pieces of trash. It is very unlikely that China would use its power to try to destroy the dollar or to destroy the American international position. It's conceivable, but not likely. I would put it in, you know, if if we, again, the closest example I can find to this is the 19th century relationship between Britain and America, where both Britain and the United States had plenty of reasons to go to war after the War of 1812. We had many crises in our relationship. But at the last, every time we came close to war, people would kind of come into the president's office and say, are you insane? Our entire financial system depends on the capital we're getting from Great Britain. They are the most important export markets for our cotton, for our northern grain. Uh, They are a vital source of technology. If, If we're cut off from Britain, the British economy and the British system, um, the American economy will collapse. But meanwhile, over in London, going into the prime minister's office, British bankers, manufacturers were coming and saying, are you mad? Have you lost your mind? America is the most important customer for our manufactured goods. Do you realize how much of the wealth of the British people is tied up in investments in the United States? Far more than anything we have in your flea-bitten empire. Um, it was literally the truth. So at the, in the last analysis, neither the British or the Americans were willing to kind of push the button. And I think we're seeing, again, the emergence of a complex interdependence between the U.S. and China, a little bit like that interdependence between Britain and the United States in the 19th century. So... I don't see this happen. Now, I think, I think we could see. I mean, you know, it's certainly conceivable that Americans would just go into debt and inflate their currency at such a rate that in spite of everyone trying to hold it up and keep the machine going, we just, we, we were, it became impossible. And the, the system would come crashing down with, with enormous and devastating consequences, not only to us but to others. But I think you can already see in the United States, if you look at the polls and the rising concern about deficits and so on, that a sort of a political consensus is forming that you know, the red ink must stop at some point. And there is, I think, a good long record, both in Britain and the United States, that goes back hundreds of years, that uh, you, don't, you don't push the button too hard. Sometimes in emergencies, you have to do emergency things, but once the emergency begins to come to an end, you try to move back toward a posture of restraint and orthodoxy. And again, you can, you can see that happening, I would argue, actually right now in both countries. So for all, these are all things, then, that I don't think are leading us to in, into imminent decline. But I, do, I, I don't want to stop. I, I, I don't want to sound too much... Uh, you know, like a a complete cockeyed optimist here. And I do think there are serious issues and questions that the United States and others will need to face in coming years. And that if we want to think about 
decline, I would say rather than thinking about the possibility of decline, we ought to be thinking more about the possibility of failure. Failure to meet certain challenges uh, that are coming on us. And that failure will clearly have serious consequences for the American position in the world, for the health of the world economy, for the chances of world peace, and for many other things. And and I don't think it's it's written in the stars that we will that we are assured of having the resources, the will, and the intellectual candle power that will enable us to overcome these problems. I think they're they're quite serious. Um, the first one, which may be in some ways the least challenging, but which is actually a really big one, is the shift in the, that's coming in the world political system from the Atlantic system of the 21st century to the Pacific world system of the 21st century. Now, again, this does not, from the standpoint of the United States, necessarily mean a a decline in power or influence or anything else. The United States is as much of a Pacific power and presence as it is an Atlantic one. But it means a lot more than just that trade across the Pacific will be more important than trade across the Atlantic. Uh, The Euro-American world order that now exists is one that's shaped by a kind of a mix and compromise between European and American ideas, interests, history, traditions, and values, with the British often playing a very important mediating role. Um, The world of the 21st century, uh, increasingly Asian countries, Asian cultures, Asian interests, and businesses will expect and deserve a greater say. I think there, there could be some changes. One of them is that Europe culturally has a strong preference for fixed institutions and agreements. In a lot of Asian cultures, there is more of an interest in kind of informal arrangements, less bureaucratic, less, um, less fixed and rigid. And so we might see you know, in a European world order, there'd be a lot more international law and a lot more sort of details about it than, there, than, than we now have. It's possible that in a world in which Asia has a voice, there would be a bit less of that. Not that there wouldn't be international cooperation, not that there wouldn't be international agreements, but it might be more by consensus than by formal institution building. One doesn't know. Uh, it'd be interesting to speculate on what some of the other things might be. Uh, we can see some of them now in terms of Asia seems to be far less excited by the need to uh, prevent climate change than much of Europe does for reasons that seem rash. You know, each side believes its own interests are best served by the policies it advocates. We are moving into a world in which Asia will have more influence, Europe probably less. And the U.S. will be in sort of the job of trying to mediate maybe a little bit, sort of, you know, the U.S. may be a little less eager to push Europe off the, off the boat than some Asians may be, but at the same time, the, the U.S. is likely to agree out of self-interest uh, with the Asians that there is a, a growing need to progressively reweight international institutions and change international norms to accommodate the rise of Asia. Doing that is going to be tough. Americans can't do it alone. It's a common challenge, but it's a big one. 
America will need to play a large role in this, and if we play it poorly, uh, we'll all suffer. The second one, which I think is, is the second big challenge that's coming, I think has already begun to make its ugly face apparent in this current financial and economic crisis, is a shift in a, a kind of a, a rebasing of world economic demand. It seems to me that we are coming, to, that the export-oriented model of economic growth which has been a great engine of Asian growth and human progress for the last generation, is facing a future of declining usefulness. That one could argue that we're actually in the presence of a very large bubble of excess manufacturing capacity. I think the world today has the ability to manufacture 90 million cars per year, but people only seem to want to buy about 60 million cars per year. Um, and that's true in a lot of different industries. So we may be facing um, uh, declining profits to manufacturers because of this global overcapacity. That tends to create problems. That, that may place long-term constraints on rates of growth in some Asian countries, it may also lead to social and political instability in these countries as manufacturing is less and less able to provide for the rising living standard that many people seek. And it may also mean that the task of shifting from export consu consumer demand to domestic consumer demand in the face of shrinking manufacturing margins may prove to be a much more difficult and long-term task than some people think. But I think moving Asian economies to a more long-term sustainable basis without losing the kinds of growth that are necessary to, to reduce poverty and provide a favorable social environment for the kinds of changes that are, that are still to come is an enormous challenge. Again, Americans can't do it alone by any means. Um, and Asian countries will have to take the lead. But this is a question, answering this, finding solutions to this problem is something that is vital, in my view, to the further development of this global liberal order that we have, and which I think it will remain the main concern of American foreign policy to advance. Uh, Finally, and most generically, I think we come to a problem which is a permanent part of American and indeed world life, um, a, a paradox in American power that creates constant problems for all of us. And I think there's a tendency for these problems to get worse. What am I, what do, what am I possibly talking about? The American world system, this global liberal order, which is the, which is the basis of American power and, the, and, and whose health is the object, in my view, of American power, is paradoxical. Why? Because in one sense, America is, as, as the globe greatest world power, is something of a status quo power. You know, that's in a sense the, the definition of, of being a dominant power you like the status, you want it to stay quo. You don't want to see a lot of change. When, when Rome had conquered the Mediterranean, it wanted time to stop. When the pharaohs had 
had conquered Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. They were ready for the end of history. Let's just have another 10,000 years of pharaohs is all they wanted. American power, on the one hand, does act like a status quo hegemonic power. But at the same time, the sort of capitalism and the dynamism that is the, the, the secret of American economic success and provides the resources for American power projection and everything else in the country is based on constant and accelerating change. Technological change, economic change, social change. Capitalism is about not doing things the same way this year that you did last year. You know, in a tradition, if you're a traditional merchant in a bizarre economy, basically what you want to do this year is buy roughly the same number of, I don't know, rugs, dates, gold, whatever it might be, that you did last year for close to the same price, and then sell them at close to the same margin and just kind of continue and pass on the business undiminished to your kids. It's more or less what most people try to do. If Walmart tried to do that, it would not last very long. You cannot try to repeat. You have to innovate. And so you get new technologies. They have social and economic consequences. The development of IT in the United States, among other things, vastly accelerated the rate of manufacturing expansion in the developing world because it makes possible the kinds of instantaneous cheap communications that you need uh, the kind of computer monitoring of, of inventory that you need if you're going to have a global supply chain and so on and so forth. So being who you are, doing what you do, means accelerating change all around you. <coughs> One consequence of this change is that it is now a lot cheaper and easier to build nuclear weapons than it was 50 years ago. And it is likely to continue to get cheaper and easier to build nuclear weapons and other weapons maybe of e that are even more frightening. I think biology in the long term is more frightening than physics. So I think we, you know, the progress that Americans are trying to produce, it's a good question whether progress is a good or bad thing, that's maybe a subject for another talk, constantly introduces new challenges into the international system. It causes some countries to gain in power and strength of, and wealth, others to lose it. It creates tensions inside countries as well as beyond them. It leads to cultural clashes as countries whose cultures are not ready or not interested, do not want mass communications, unfiltered access to what's going on in the world, are suddenly deluged in images and ideas over the Internet or what have you. Sometimes it seems to me that when Al Gore invented the Internet, he was doing just as much to kind of destroy global stability as George Bush did when he invaded Iraq, possibly more. The Internet may ultimately turn out to have been a far more disruptive thing than the war in Iraq. So the United States' very success and the spread of this model into more countries and the development of new and different forms of capitalist enterprise and technology around the world create new problems maybe faster than we can solve old ones. This, I think, is the great challenge of the 21st century for all of us.
not just Americans. And it's not just a question about American decline or American power, although the question of American power is very much bound up with one's ability to find solutions to some of these problems. But in any case, that's a, that's a survey of at least some of the things I think about when I think about decline. I hope it was helpful to you, and I look forward to a, a vigorous question and answer session. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Thanks very much. Uh, those of you who have to go, if we just have a few seconds while people leave. Uh, we've got uh, 25 minutes for questions. I've already got one person who's <laughs> dived in immediately uh, uh, and has attracted my attention. We have got microphones, so please wait until somebody gives it to you. Okay, uh, gentlemen. Hi, um, I'd like to ask you about um, the city on the hill concept and America's role in sort of global moral leadership and whether you think to any extent that is in decline and if so, in the, 20, you know, in the brave new world, does that matter? Well, again, this, this is one of those questions that brings, focuses my mind uh, more on historical complexity than on simple answers. Because there's a tendency, particularly when looking at things like City of the Hill and, you know, is America a city on the hill to the world, to romanticize the past as a way of critiquing the present. So people talk about, oh, you know, America used to have this terrific moral leadership. Now we've lost it. Oh, alack and alas. But I think, you know, when I was a kid living, uh, growing up in South Carolina, I lived in a racially segregated society, and my state had a one-party was a one-party state with a racially restricted franchise. And that was well-known around the world. And American and, and the sort of deep institutional racism of American life was justly uh, used to critique these sort of American delusions of grandeur. When you think about the American missionaries landing in China in the 1840s with this, you know, what are, why are you having foot binding and why are you oppressing the peasants? We had slavery back home in the United States and many other problems. Didn't stop the missionaries for a minute. Um, so to some degree, you know, the interesting thing to me is that over a very long time now, in spite of having many conditions at home or elements in its foreign policy that can clearly not be confused with those of utopia, the United States nevertheless manages to some degree, to a surprising degree, to look to a lot of people like something like the kind of future that they would like to have for themselves in some way. Not to everybody, generally speaking, almost never to European intellectuals, um, to whom America seems a horrible example of another kind. Um, Part of it, I think, is the sense of, you know, it's, it was the first society of mass prosperity plus mass political liberty, where you just had a lot of people who weren't rich or special or connected, who had enough money to kind of do a lot of the things that they wanted and, you know, had a, felt that they had a lot of control over their own lives. And that looks really good to people who, who feel they're lacking. I was astonished, frankly, by the extent to which the election of President Obama um, 
uh, led to a rapid increase in, a, in, in United States stock on the markets of world opinion. Uh, and not just, not just here, but in, in Europe and uh, throughout much of the world. So it seems to me there's still, there is still a desire of a lot of people to think of America as standing for something or offering some kind of path into a desirable future. Uh, I would not overestimate that the influence of that on specific political effects. But there is still, you know, this kind of a funny sense that, that this is a future and it's a future that's not all bad. Great, I've got four people uh, already lined up uh, over there. Sorry, Jens and Blosha. Just quickly on the last point, I think anybody reading the quality press today in the FT will see that President Obama can't live off his capital forever, and he's already facing very considerable criticism over his climate change policy, let alone uh, health care reform. But the main point I wanted to raise uh, was regarding the American military, which you didn't actually make a direct reference to. And assuming that they can retain their technological superiority, uh, what's the point of that when they seem to be so ineffective when, in their adventures abroad? As long ago as Vietnam, certainly now Iraq, and apparently also in Afghanistan. Um, you know, the, the limits of American military power are, are now clear for all to see, and that's undermining the hegemony. And do you think the United States can actually contain the spread of nuclear weapons, especially when its military influence is, is uh, being so undermined? Well, I guess I, I'm not sure I agree with the premise of your question. You know, today we are celebrating what I understand will become a national holiday in Iraq, the day that U.S. military forces leave the cities of Iraq. Uh, and while I, no one would confuse Iraq with utopia, uh, the fact that a stable gov elected government in Iraq feels confident enough in its power that it's ready to begin to reduce its dependence on America, the American military actually doesn't sound to me all that much like failure. Failure would look something different. Uh, I wouldn't call it gl glorious success either, but that's, you know, but... When, when I hear the, num the numbers of people who told me in the last three years that, that this was, there was no way out, it was going to be a disaster, the surge couldn't possibly work, I don't think it's fully worked, but you know what I mean. You know, that there was just a hopeless mess that would get more and more hopeless. The only thing was to you know, basically run out as fast as possible. That's not what happened. Uh, the lectures I had from distinguished French intellectuals about Algeria and Iraq. But American purposes in Iraq, however confused they may have been, were not colonial, are not colonial. Um, so I actually think that American military power remains a pretty signal uh, element of, the, of, of what stability we have around the world. It's far more important in terms of helping to create uh, security in Asia. In Asia, to some degree, the, the large amount of American power may be playing a role a little bit the way it did in Europe after 1945 as sort of guaranteeing everyone that they, there wouldn't be another war in Europe uh, made it possible for people to begin to look beyond some of their rivalries. It's also interesting that the large preponderance of conventional power that the U.S. has militarily is allowing it to actually begin to 
build a diplomacy toward the abolition of nuclear weapons, um, something that uh, my friend Dr. Kissinger uh, has spoken in, in favor of. Uh, basically, you know, from a realist, from I think uh, Henry's realist perspective, it's you know the U.S. is so strong conventionally that if everyone abolished nuclear weapons, American power would be enhanced in the world. So why not advance and you know advocate something that is so popular? Uh, but again, I, I think I think America's military power is both greater than you suggest and a greater force in world politics. Take somebody from the top there, that gentleman. Yep. Thank you. Uh, my name is Vijay Jantan. I'm from the British Tamil Forum. Just um, like to throw you an example because we follow the Sri Lankan conflict uh, a, lot, a lot closely. Um, obviously, the conflict came to an end this year. Um, the uh, inner city press, uh, the UN. Um, stated that the Sri Lankan crisis this year was Obama's biggest challenge, international challenge as such. The Sri Lankan crisis? The, yeah, the Sri Lankan crisis that ended this year in May. Um, the Times, obviously, has had uh, covered a front-page article saying it's a hidden massacre of 20,000 20, Tamils. And the EU Human Rights Council um, uh, actually passed... Uh, a resolution which was favorable to Sri Lanka, which the Times call, uh, said was disgraceful because it, it basically did, it called for uh, human rights watchers call for an international investigation into this, uh, this massacre. Do you feel that uh, in this regional South Asian, uh, the, the Asian regional aspect where America will be um, allowing the growth of China and, and other countries, do you feel that that will be at a loss of um, human rights and, and, and basic, you know, uh, rights for the minority nations, and do you think that will fuel future instability in the region? Well, I think, uh, I think that we are likely, alas, to, to see more tragedies like the one that we've seen in Sri Lanka. Uh, I suppose I'm uh, enough of an Augustinian to think that human nature seems to be something that we don't reform or change overnight or perhaps ever to some degree. But in thinking about how do we, you know, what are the implications of the rise of other powers in Asia for small countries in Asia, I think to some degree the U.S. as a, as a power that seeks a balance of power and ultimately the emergence of an order in Asia is likely to have long term a, a concern for the rights of small countries that small countries in an international order are, little, are the canaries in the coal mine. When they're sort of free to sing and strut their stuff a little bit, you know that that's an area where the security environment is somewhat improving. So just as the, the U.S. presence in Asia probably helps Korea's long-term chances for feeling more independent from either China or Japan, from having to make that kind of choice. In the same way, I think to the degree that the U.S. remains a factor in South Asia, uh, sort of consequences of Indian hegemony in its, in its immediate neighborhood might be less marked than they would otherwise be. But I, I don't think the U.S. or any other power is unfortunately uh, able to bring about the kind of Kantian peace that, that all of us would like to see. Okay, I've got a lot of people now. I'll take the lady in blue next, then the gentleman in the white in the back there, 
then there, and then there, and then there, and if that does it, it probably will. I'll try, I'll try to give shorter answers, too. Short questions, short answers. Both I'll, I'll try to make this really quick. I just have two points. And the first relates to um, the financial crisis that you, you mentioned. In, we've had this in history, but... I'd like to note that in the interwar period, the, the U.S., I think, could be attributed for the Great Depression. Um, and it didn't really come to full employment levels until World War II. Um, so if we're looking at that again, uh, it doesn't look too great. And Iken Green and O'Rourke, I think, just put out a piece on marking the Great Depression to the current crisis and how it's following that path um, pretty accurately. So I'd like you to comment on that. And the second one is the you mentioned the analogy between U.S. and um, and China between Britain and the U.S. and not pushing buttons. And it seems that in the interwar period, if we follow hegemonic stability theory and you say that you know, the Brit Britain wouldn't lead and the U.S. couldn't, uh, couldn't we be at the same stage where um, you know, maybe the U.S. is falling behind and uh, China's not exactly ready to act? Okay. Well, very quickly. Um, I'm here talking about the future of American power, not the future of GDP for the next five years. I don't know where the crisis is going, and I don't think actually Eichen Green knows either. He was conjecturing rather than predicting. Uh, and, you know, if we are Britain, if China and the U.S. are Britain and the United States, I think we're more 1870s than 1935. That is, China, you know, we're, we're a long way from, from the point of fecklessness that Britain had reached uh, under the glor ever glorious uh, conservative governments of the 1930s. Okay. Hmm. okay. Uh, gentleman in the white shirt. It's not really white. It's Thank you, white. Sebastian Thomas from Legal Week. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you were talking about economics and geopolitical issues, uh, and you didn't want to touch too much on the superficial stuff at first, but I wonder if the, uh, if the media actually make a huge difference nowadays, making the public in America and around the world aware of economic scenarios and the financial system having to struggle at the moment. I wonder if that's actually going to make a difference with either internally the Americans looking at their country being in decline or even more importantly from the outside, how people may view the country and whether it's in decline or not? Okay. Uh, good question. I think, first of all, I think we should pay attention to the way that media impact tends to diminish over time. You know, the sort of, in, in the East Coast, every hurricane is the storm of the century, and the media, you know, every little one is like the worst thing that ever happens. After a few of these, it's like the boy who cried wolf, and people understand the weather channel is hyping the hurricane so you'll watch the weather channel um, and I think there is a sort of a, a response to that over media doom and gloomness but also um, you get you get many more voices in the media as the media develops in the US you know we don't just have now CNN we also have Fox which often takes a very different point of view so that the the impact of the media doesn't steadily grow it actually becomes very diverse and doesn't necessarily lead to one political outcome. Okay. Gentleman in the front, yeah, you're still in? Or? Uh, James Woodhausen, Professor Woodhausen, actually. I write for Spiked. I thought your portrait of China really as a status quo power in Asia, in the world, and in relation to the dollar was very fair. 
but I think in your final part remarks about uh, innovation and IT, if you look at uh, the proportion of the stimulus that Obama is spending on R&D, it's very, very small. It's about 0.6% of GDP right now. If you look at American R&D as a proportion of GDP, it's been stagnant for years, about 2%. China's research and development is way on the up. So we could talk about Pakistan, we could talk about the Middle East, we could talk about the travise of Japan and its long-term demographic prospects. But it seems to me that the impetus to change always anew, which you rightly drew attention to in your closing remarks, is something that America is losing the will to actually do. The location for innovation in America has been in finance much more than it has been in other services and in manufacturing. That seems to me to suggest that America is in decline and that the East is more and more the location for innovation in the new century. Well, you know, obviously it's a complicated set of questions. Um, I would actually argue, though, that, that the election of Obama himself is, you know, the, this last election was an interesting one because neither candidate uh, positioned themselves as a candidate of the past. Both candidates were saying, I'm the guy who will lead you into the future, not the guy who will restore the golden age. And again, it was interesting that Obama basically won because people saw him as being a, a more convincing candidate of change. And obviously, you know, you think about the United States, two wars going on, possibility of others, economic crisis, and instead of kind of retreating into a defensive, uh, let's keep it all the same and get another Arizona conservative or whatever, they say, let's have our first African-American president ever, and let's see how that works. So I, I think you see a society that is still forward-looking, reinventing itself, res envisioning challenges and setbacks as, as calls for greater openness and greater reaching out. Now, you know, so I would say it's not over yet. Yeah, you said. Yeah. Please Actually, I met him, but he's been there longer, so in fairness, you should probably, yeah, passed on one. Thank you. Um, now, you say when the USA um, has its so-called decline, it still has twice as much as global GDP as Great Britain had during its peak of its empire. Um, now, this is your argument for saying USA is not in decline, but how can this be a suitable comparison? It can be easily argued that the British Empire wasn't about economic strength, really. Wasn't it true that the empire was around 25 to 20% of, I can't exactly remember, of the world's land percent? Yet, it, as you said, it only had 7% of the global GDP. Now, I'd say much of the US, uh, America's might is economical. So the definition of decline, of not calling the shots, will be true when in less than 30 years, China, and in 60 years, India, overtakes uh, America's GDP. Um, so even though at, at the start of your argument you suggest the USA wants other countries to become rich, but the decline surely is evident if the USA cannot call the shots anymore. Well, I think the question is what do we mean by calling the shots? But, but actually if you had gone back to um, the 19th century and listened to what the British and the others said about their empire, everyone would have said that the core of the British empire was its economic lead. 
that it had the Industrial Revolution first, and that's why it had that its geopolitical power was a consequence of its economic power and its um, uh, uh, technology, technological lead. So, in fact, the cases are more comparable than you were suggesting, I think. Okay. As a, as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, you know that the major presidential candidates, McCain, Obama, Clinton, and Giuliani, are all CFR members. The Obama administration contains nine CFR members. McCain's would arguably look the same. My question is, how can America be called a true democracy if voters can only choose between two members of the same group? <laughs> I'm afraid the secret is out. Um, look, uh, the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, is it's, it's more it's a club. And uh, uh, it doesn't actually, the CFR itself doesn't take stands on, on issues. There's no CFR position on Iran or Iraq. And in fact, Dick Cheney is a member of the CFR. And Hillary Clinton is a member of the CFR. That doesn't prevent them from disagreeing quite strongly about virtually every uh, issue that there is. The president, the head of Goldman Sachs is a member of the CFR. So is the head of the American Trade Unions Association. What we try to do as an organization is recruit members who are leaders in both parties and in a wide range of industries and in academia and the media. But the only way we can do that and kind of hold them into one organization is to be more a platform for debate rather than an agent of change. Uh, so we are very consensual in that way. Our board is divided too. So while the um, you know, so while the members are powerful, but again, that doesn't mean the organization is powerful. The members don't act through the organization. Um, and I think, I don't know, there probably are clubs in England. It's, it's more like a country club or a golf club in some ways than like a sort of a political lobby group. If Chatham House is running the country, we're all doomed. It would be the same thing. <laughs> uh, I, we've only got uh, five minutes left. That's one there and uh, Matthew there. I didn't quite understand what you meant by the disruptive effect of um, Al Gore inventing the internet, or did I misunderstand that completely? Okay. Yes, I Al Gore, uh, it's kind of maybe an inside American political joke. Al Gore was criticized in the 2000 campaign because it was felt he had inflated his share of credit. He said, I, at one point, I think he said, I invented the internet. And uh, he was involved in a congressional committee that had oversight of DARPA, the uh, defense agency where, where some of the internet was spawned. Uh, but what I meant, to, what I really, the serious point I was trying to make is that the, disrupt, the, the disruptive social and economic and political changes that result from innovation are often, often more problematic even than the disruptions that come from specific political or military acts. Matthew. You talked about the difficulty in measuring whether decline is an empirical fact or not and suggested that maybe it's not really worth bothering with the decline debate. You also mentioned that it might be more useful to look at uh, whether the U.S. still has the capacity to achieve its foreign policy 
objectives. And to me, a large part of that has to do with how the U.S. perceives its own abilities. Uh, so objective reality aside, the subjective may actually be more important. I guess it was Madeleine Albright who said in the 90s that the U.S. was the indispensable nation. I'm not sure that they would still talk about themselves in that way. How do you think U.S. self-perception has changed, and how important is that as far as foreign policy goes? Well, I know that Madeleine Albright still thinks the United States is the indispensable nation. I know, by the way, that the French foreign minister disagreed with her in the 90s. I suspect he still would. Um, so I I'm afraid I'm now old enough. So I've lived through several waves of uh, the chattering classes talking about the decline of the United States. Um, one Vietnam era, another one in sort of uh, mid to late 1980s, uh, and the current one now. Um, this one is by no means the deepest or the most prolonged of those debates. So far, it's, each of them has been, you know, followed by the chattering classes saying American Renaissance after American debate. I actually think the this sort of punditry has exaggerated um, uh, everything that's happened that America didn't rise as high and was not as powerful in the 1990s as a lot of people were sort of hyperactively exclaiming and was less impotent in the last 10 years than some of those same people thought. Um, very often people, uh, particularly in the United States, have a way of assuming that there's a simple one-to-one -one correlation between morality and wisdom on the one hand and success on the other. So that if you're in an opposition party and you don't like what the other people are doing, you conclude that foreign policy that you don't like is de facto evidence of serious decline, moral, political, and the, fail the catastrophe is on us. Then amazingly, you know, we have a different election and perceptions begin to turn. But I don't say that it's, it's useless to talk about decline. That was not at all what I was trying to suggest. I'm saying that it's extremely difficult and that these sort of loose-lipped discussions of decline more conceal what's going on rather than help you think it through. Uh, and I think people who want to talk about it should be held to a fairly rigorous standard and should be required to show why they're not just puffing the same kind of hot air that people have been doing repeatedly in the past on the subject. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, well, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank you for, for uh, being a very good audience and for suffering the LSE sauna. It's the new experience which we, we're uh, thinking of marketing. Uh, but especially I'd like to thank our speaker who's given us a very entertaining talk and some very good discussion afterwards. Uh, Walter Russell Mead, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.